Hello everyone and welcome back to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host Crawford Gribben and today my guest is Jeremy Black. Jeremy is Professor of History at Exeter University, one of the most widely published historians, if not the most widely published historian in English. And we're delighted to have Jeremy here to speak about his new book, Britain and Europe, A Short History. Jeremy, thanks for coming on to the show. A pleasure. It's great to have you here. Um, can you tell us, before we begin to talk about the book, a little bit about yourself, previous publications, perhaps some of your earlier work? Yes, I was born in London in 1955. I grew up there, went to school there. I went to Cambridge in 1975, graduated with a start first in 1978, went to Oxford to do research work at St. John's, uh, Oxford in 1978, 1979. I was promoted to a senior scholarship at Merton, 1980. I was appointed at Durham. I went lecturer, senior lecturer, reader, and became professor at Durham in 1994, and I moved to Exeter in 1996 and have been there ever since. I started working essentially on British foreign policy in the 18th century in the 1980s, bridging out into newspaper history and the history of tourism. I then moved at the beginning of the 90s into military history, which has remained one of my major themes since. But during that period, I've also published on the history of maps, on British history, European history and American history. And it does not make me a better person. I'd prefer for people to comment. I'd prefer for people to comment on the range and quality of the work rather than the quantity. But as you said at the outset, I'm apparently, so I'm told, uh, the most prolific historian uh, publishing in English ever. And the envy of many of us, uh, I I doubt that. that. I I doubt that. that. I would have thought the hatred of more (laughs) envy, I'm afraid to say, is more overly dominant. But anyway, go on. (laughs) Good, good. Well, we aim to flatter, if not to please. Um, This book, Britain and Europe, just published by Hearst in 2018, Obviously, a very timely topic. What's the background to this project in particular? Yes, I mean, actually, it's an interesting one. I first did, uh, um, Hearst approached me to do a book, and initially they approached me to do three books uh, one on English nationalism, which appeared last year. And that was pertinent to the question of whether with Scotland possibly at some stage becoming independent, one needed to think about what the history of English nationalism would mean and what it had meant and what it could mean. So that book came out. I happen to think it's a good one. Others can have their own view. The the next book was on imperial legacies, which was the uh, long-term impression of the British Empire. I published, I sort of wrote that. It's a good book. They didn't like it because they thought they wanted a book that was more critical of the empire. So they turned it down, had to pay me out what they owed me because there's nothing wrong with the book. And it's appearing in a different version elsewhere. Their loss. Um, Then the next book on the line was Britain and Europe. Um, and, you know, I agreed to write that because, I mean, this, you know, I mean, in a way, um, I didn't want to take to get stuck in the foothills of the specifics of the debate over Brexit. I'm quite happy to talk about that if that's what you want. But I really wanted to look at a broader question of the complexities of Britain's relations uh, within and with uh, the continent of Europe within Europe and with the continent of Europe. And I wanted to do so in a way that didn't foreclose where we should be. I mean, this is going to sound rather odd since you and I are both historians, but it's almost as if the debate on 
Britain's relationship with the European Union today is overly dominated by history. In other words, both Remainers and Brexiteers rabbit on endlessly about what the lessons of history should be to the present day. I mean, in my view, in a democratic society, the actual uh, basis of how people should conduct themselves should rest on the democratic mandate of people at the present moment and not on what the supposed lessons of history supposedly are. And I mean, I was speaking at the British Library in London on Thursday night, and it was supposed to be on, you know, they've got this, this big exhibition on Anglos, the Anglo-Saxons, and it was, I was supposed to be speaking on Anglo-Saxonism, English nationalism and essentially how it was looked at in the medieval period and the person introducing it sort of almost immediately hijacked it to become part of a debate well not a debate he very much was party pre on a view about brexit and the point i was trying to make is that obviously historically britain is a european state but that doesn't uh, dictate its relationship within it with any constituent organization religious or political in europe and i would say exactly the same if you were looking around europe at the present day i mean one of the things i find most striking is the largest european country is of course european russia which is completely outside this debate because of course it's never going to be part of the European Union but the idea that in some way Europe means that you have to be a part of the European Union is clearly ludicrous just as the idea that it doesn't mean you have to be part there is no people shouldn't be deterministic about it and one of the things I find very depressing and one of the things I think links both the Brexiteers and the Remainers is they have a common habit of immediately going onto very narrow lines. Whereas if you want a specific comment on Brexit, we were semi-detached as a result of choosing not to join the euro. Um, that, I think, was an absolutely crucial decision, which people don't tend to give sufficient weight to at the present moment. We were semi-detached as a result of that. What the referendum has done, whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, whichever way you voted, or many people didn't vote, what the referendum has done has changed the nature of that semi-detachment. Mm -hmm. But the idea that before the referendum we were fully-fledged members of the European project is rubbish. The idea that after the referendum, if it is implemented in the form of Brexit, whatever that is supposed to mean, we in some way are going to be completely removed from, uh, from Europe is also rubbish. And people on both sides are overly inclined to exaggerate, I fear. Mm. I think uh, one of the things that comes through in your book, which complicates this discussion in a really marvellous way, is that in the past, we've had one foot in Europe. In the future, we may have one foot out. Um, you, you, you describe the project at the beginning of the book as a project in deep history. But what do you mean by that? Tell us about the chronological range of this book, Britain and Europe. Well, I mean, I try and go back to the beginning. I mean, you know, I mean, in a sense, the period in which people started to be aware of uh, political entities on the other side of the Channel and the North Sea. So obviously the longest period of human history in England and in the British Isles as a whole, people weren't aware of that, you know, uh, going right back to the Ice Age period. Uh, but if you're looking at essentially from the first century BC onwards, people were aware that there were polities on the other side of the North Sea and the Channel, and they were aware of their relationship with them, and, their relation, and those relationships existed. What do I mean by deep history? I mean in the sense by deep history that I think that experience and a kind of accumulated cultural weight, cultural in a broader sense, including issues of language and religion, a sense of place, 
has an effect. Now, the defect is not deterministic, and you know, this is where it loops back to what I was just talking about. Mm. It isn't a deterministic effect, but it does help to create the framework within which we operate. So, to give you an idea, many people today are, and many people consider themselves secular, which is fair enough, they've made the choice, but equally, it would be bizarre not to note the deep impact in the social arrangements, the assumptions about family, and so on, which comes from having been a Christian society uh, for nearly two millennium. So that is part of the deep history of the British Isles, and people throw away deep history, um, you know, without, uh, in a foolish fashion. But of course, the fact that Britain has a deep history as a Christian set of societies does not mean that that has a particular and obvious political manifestation in terms of particular choices at specific moments in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Well, if we think about your title, Jeremy, Britain and Europe, how does, for example, you just mentioned religion play into notions of what Britain is or was meant to be? as the idea was being constructed? Well, that's, again, a very good question. I mean, in in part, obviously, Britishness, um, however constituted, and it had a number of meanings in the first millennium, but in part, it became rapidly linked with Christianity as part of a project which obviously had its origins originally and for a very long time uh, since we were part of Western Christendom um, in Rome and in the papacy. It's interesting to note, by the way, that some years ago, so it may have been his promise, the Patriarch of Constantinople had, or as he now is, uh, Istanbul, uh, was given an honorary doctorate at Exeter, and he gave a speech, very eloquent man, um, gave a speech in which inter alia he talked about, it wasn't his main theme, uh, Europe, and he had actually remarked that from the perspective of of the leader of orthodoxy, he felt that the European Union was totally wrong because he felt that orthodoxy as much defined Europeanness as anything else Mm. and that the majority of the orthodox um, world was outside the European Union, always would be. And I thought Mm. that was a very interesting perspective and it reminds us that although in some respects, if you go right back into the 1950s and the origins of what became the European Union, the European Economic Community, in many senses that was a project which was very much centred on uh, Catholic versions of Christian democracy, and it was very much um, you know, a, in, in many sense a political Catholic project, a kind of post-World War II uh, Catholic social democracy designed to try and keep the working class away from communism. That was essentially one of the major themes of the Catholic Church in the 1950s. And, you know, that was an important element. People need to remember that. It doesn't mean that that defines it at the moment. But what that does remind us is that there are multiple identities that are possible in terms of a Christian Europe. One shouldn't assume only one um, is the necessary outcome. And of course, this explains the iconography of the European flag, doesn't it? The 12 stars uh, on a blue background. One of the things your book also points out is that there's another kind of Europe uh, which ideas of a Christian Europe don't quite reach for. Uh, The multi-religious populations of the Habsburg Empire, for example, also play a very important role in how Europe has emerged over the years. Yeah, well, what I would say is this. I mean, it is very difficult to define Europe. I mean, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this in a number of works. It's a very difficult thing to define it. Um, 
geographically the usual idea is everywhere west of the Urals. Well, that is a you know, that ipso facto means that most of Europe is European Russia. Um, there is, of course, the attempt to define it as Christendom. Well, that's a tricky one because whilst that may well be true in a set of values. For most of the history of the last 500 years, Quebec or Lima, New York, Boston, Santiago have been more European cities from that point of view. Manila have been more European cities than Sofia or Athens or Bucharest or Belgrade, all of which were directly or indirectly under the Ottoman Turks, some of them from the 15th century on, the others from the 16th century on. So in many respects, the issue that arises now with large-scale immigration from uh, Islamic societies over the last 40 years, you know, the Turks into Germany, I suppose, first, but also large numbers of South Asians in particular, actually over the last 60 years now, uh, large South Asians into Britain and large numbers of Algerians into France, etc., etc. Um, the point is that is a new and different iteration or version of what was a much longer comp complication about the notion of Europe. Now, for mo I think it's fair to say you can always find, if you want to be, you know, and, you, know you and I are, are scholars, we know you can always find somebody who's off, off beat, as it were. But for most people writing about Europe in the 16th, 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, they would not have assumed that the world of Islam was part of the world of, of, uh, of, of Europe. They just didn't. Um, you know, there were exceptions, I'm not doubting that, but they just didn't. They assumed there was something different in the nature of political authority uh, about an Islamic society, particularly the idea that there was arbitrary power over, over life and death, and particularly the fact that um, the nature of enslaving, particularly enslaving Christians, um, was part of the Islamic world. Um, and I think this is worth bearing in mind because today people run out all sorts of glib definitions of Europe, generally to, mod to suit modern political convenience. Fine, if that's what they want to do, that's what people do. You know, <laughs> no point regretting people being human, and most people are motivated by convenience in the way they, you know, adduce values and identities. But it's, it's, it's appropriate appropriate to note that this debate about Europeanness has to take or should take cognizance of the fact that as long as a Christian understanding and a cultural understanding of Europe pertained, then in fact the kind of settlement colonies created by Europeans, the diaspora across the Atlantic in particular, the New World very much so, was as much part of the European world as any attempt to image the Balkans, for example, as European. Hmm. So, obviously, two very complicated terms in your title, Britain and Europe. In terms of method and as an historian, how did you begin to think about working through these titles? You've got a massive historical period, massive chronological frame. Both Britain and Europe are emerging and changing uh, in various ways, sometimes contradictory ways, through this very long period. So perhaps to help some of our postgraduate listeners, could you talk us through how you use these terms in the book? 
Yeah, well, let's just start off with the basic thing about how, you know, this is for postgraduates. Uh, the classic, well, you know, you get the idea in some of the literature, particularly if you people have sort of drunk deep in the sort of romantic and post-romantic fantasies of English literature, that the author is some kind of person that sits in a garret uh, and has brilliant insights which have, you know, as it were, communicated to them by Clio. Well, it doesn't happen. I mean, I know Edward, I know Edward Gibbon wrote that marvellous passage about sitting in the forum, and, you know, I can understand that one. But on the whole, it's mostly hard work. And hard work is classically incremental. So what does that mean? I'm now in my mid-60s. What that And I've been a full-time academic since I was 24. I did some teaching before then, but since I was 24. So what that means is that to considerable extent, you actually rethink um, work, understandings, lectures, ways you've discussed things over, in my case, a period of four decades. And so, you know, as you'll know from my uh, literature, I've, you know, I've done a history of Britain. I've done a history of England. I've, you know, I've also done a history of 18th century Europe and a history of Europe since um, 1960 or 1970. I can't remember which to, at the moment. And so in a sense, I was familiar with a lot of the discussion. And, you know, I would like to say I have contributed to it. That's for others to assess. But what I wanted to do was to look at it afresh in, and this is the point about this book, like the English nationalism book, they are primarily written not for scholars, though I'm very happy to hear from scholars about them. They are primarily written so that somebody who is an informed adult can pick them up and read them. Mm. Now, what do I, what do I mean by that? They are not they are not Germanic, you know as well as I do. You pick up a German book and particularly if they haven't translated it into English, if you're reading it in the original German, the first chapter is absolutely deluged with historiography, footnotes back to, you know, Moses coming down from Mount Sinai. You know, absolutely every authority that they can think to cite, plus a big dollop of conceptual conceptualization. The one thing I was trying not to do, so this may not be the answer you want, was to not get bogged down in conceptual methodological and historiographical uh, debates. I wanted to write a book that would make sense for bright people who are not historians. And indeed, I would say, let me take this a stage further, if I may, since your program relates to new books. I would say there are obviously many good books out there and there are many good authors and, you know, I admire many of them and I try when I'm writing book reviews to draw attention to their strengths and their skills. I also think there's an enormous amount of rubbish out there. A lot of the academic stuff is overly written for small arcane groups. You could fit everybody interested in the subject into a telephone kiosk. And that kind of history is not what I wish to write. I can write it. I, you know, I've written the definitive article in the historical journal of the foreign policy of Britain in 1729 to 30. But, you know, quite frankly, I wouldn't go rush out and go and read it. So I, I think too many academics define their way that, in, in that fashion. And too many British academics are encouraged to do so by the pursuit of grant income and by the exigencies of the research assessment framework. <laughs> Conversely, you get an enormous amount of rubbish, total rubbish, written uh, in popular history, sort of, you know, the new book on whatever it might be. Sure. Let's pick one that hasn't come out, sure. The War in Italy in 1943. I have had to be very careful there, as you may notice, um, um, because too much of that stuff is very low grade. It doesn't, 
it doesn't degree any any level of complexity. So, for example, classically books on war that don't take strategy seriously and are all to do with face of battle or mostly to do with face of battle, etc., etc., or very simplistic ones in which the reader isn't introduced to a debate. The assumption is there's just one answer, and what a surprise, the writer knows what it is. So if you just sit quietly, the writer will tell you what you ought to listen to. That, again, is a hopeless response. Hopeless response. What one has to do is to take the view that people reading books or listening to the radio are intelligent people and they need to have their intelligent, the, the issue discussed with them intelligently. So if you listen to the radio, read, you will know that there are different views, let's say classically, on Brexit or mm-hmm. on pension reform or President Trump or God knows what. What a surprise. There are also, therefore, different views that are possible on the historical process, on the nature of history, and indeed, in some respects, on what is important about the past. And the mistake is, and I've I very much strongly argue this in the sense of BBC television in particular. The mistake is to present a portrayal of the past that is overly simple, to talk down to the public, to, to as it were, titillate with the past. You can see Lucy Worsley's ridiculous programmes in that respect, and don't cut that out. Um, and you, instead of which, what one needs to do is to actually say to people, this is complicated. The past is interesting precisely because this is complicated. And it should be, therefore, the case that if I'm writing a book on Britain and Europe, there isn't a simple narrative to answer when you say to me, how did I do it? Because it's complicated. It Mm. isn't easy. Mm. Writing gives me a splitting headache. Why does writing give me a splitting headache? Because it requires constant thought. Mm. Because one is aware in just about every sentence one writes that there are other ways in which you could present this and other arguments you could present. And the classic thing about history is you cannot repeat the experiment to try and evaluate it. Mm-hmm. Well, th- there's everything accessible about, about your book, Britain and Europe, but nothing at all simplistic about it. One of the themes that I think struck me uh, beautifully as, as, it, as it's developed through the book is, is the theme of England as existing in a composite monarchy from... Uh, 1016, uh, through the Danish uh, invasion, through the Norman invasion, and and, and really uh, till the present day. Uh, Why is this an important theme for thinking about Britain and Europe? Well, I think you're right, it is. And obviously, you're speaking to me from Belfast. And obviously, this is something that is very much present in terms of of the wider British dimension of history as opposed to what might be a narrower English one. Um, And indeed, what's interesting is, as you will know from the Irish perspective, from about the 1970s, more particularly the 80s and 90s, the sort of four nations approach to British history developed, in other words, giving greater weight to Scotland, Wales and Ireland. And that was important and it should be regarded as important. Obviously, it can be complemented and confused, and that's a good way of looking at it, by pointing out that it's not just four nations, but exactly as you said, that for much of its history, and of course, I think one can go back to prior to Canute taking over um, in 1016, one can think of the Roman experience. Of course, Britain yeah. was part, Britain was part in whole or part, Ireland wasn't ruled by the Romans, for example, nor was Ireland ruled by King Canute. But Britain, uh, in whole or part, was also an aspect of a wider polity which actually bridged, although of course there wasn't a bridge, but bridged either the North Sea or the Channel or both. Um, 
And I think that this is significant because it means the level of complexity is very great. Let's take one obvious one. Um, many countries to this day have blood and soil accounts of nationalism. In other words, what is Poland? Poland is the country of the Poles, mm-hmm. you know, which, as, or Hungary, the country of the Hungarians. As you know, these still play a very, very, very active role in their modern politics, sometimes not always, shall we say, in an attractive fashion. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, that was absurd in England from the formation of the old English monarchy in the 10th century onwards. Uh, as you know, by the time you've got to 970, and uh, you've got an English monarchy which composes people, if you wish to use this, these crude elements, and each of these can be disaggregated of Anglo-Saxon origin, and you can disaggregate that easily into Angles and Saxons, of Nordic or Viking or Danish origin, mm-hmm. um, you, of, as it were, old British origin, pre-Roman, you know, particularly in Cornwall and Strathclyde. Then you can turn to Scotland by the 13th century. You've got the elements of whatever you mean by Scots, whatever you mean by Picts, whatever you mean by the Angles, who were in Lothian, whatever you mean by the Norsemen, who were in the north. And then once you start adding in the Irish dimension and the Welsh dimension, I mentioned, what you have is an astonishingly polyglot ethnicity, mm. which is why the basis of nationalism in both England, uh, well, particularly England, but I would say in both England and Britain, and the two are not coterminous, though, as I've discussed in my book on English nationalism, mm. they've often been treated as coterminous. Um, and I'd like to say the book on English nationalism is in some way the prelude to this book on Britain and Europe. The two don't need to be read together, but I think readers would definitely benefit from reading them together. Um, What you've therefore had is not a blood and soil nationalism. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't racists who tried to push that to the fore. Obviously, there have been. But on the whole, nationalism has therefore been encoded around a set of values. Whether those set of values were um, true or mythic ideas of particular constitutional founding documents, whether it's, let's say, Magna Carta or the Declaration of Albroath, whether it's ideas of religion and of course the idea of uh, of religion classic idea of religion is everybody being equal whatever their origins which of course is absolutely a kernel principle of of christianity that it's not racially exclusive um, and then of course the separate complexities caused by having the church of england church of scotland church of wales church of ireland etc and of course the problems with relations with catholicism uh, you've each of those were not originally defined, although ethnicity came in. One of the tragedies, I would say, of the history of the British Isles is when, in a way, and I mean, I don't want to use the term poison because that is a value judgment term, but in, in a way, Irish nationalism was defined in the late 19th century very much around an ethnicity, um, a sort of, you know, Catholic Gaelic identity, which was unfortunate. That's being code word for a bloody disaster, because, of course, the strength of nationalism in the British Isles prior to that had largely been that it didn't have a ethnic uh, identity in that fashion. One of the things you hint at the very end of the book is that part of the divergence between Britain and Europe can be explained by changing fashions in education. With the decline of education in the classics, it comes a different kind of cultural formation, which is much more essentialist, perhaps, popular, perhaps, but certainly local and inverted commas. Could you expand on that point, Will? Um, 
Yes, I mean, let me just take it in a broader sense. Can I just for a second? Yeah. I think that um, without going as far as the you know vitalist idea of thesis and antithesis, I think there are there is a a dichotomy that has been something that one can observe in cultural terms. Just as people have talked about the haves and the have-nots, and they've said, oh, well, the have-nots were you know, Brexiteers, which is a little strange and peculiar a view if you think about a lot of South of England, <laughs> where many of the people voted Brexit. But anyway, we'll leave that to one side. I think what you've also got is a tension between cosmopolitanism and a more localist approach in cultural terms. And that could be linked to education in the broadest sense. It's not just education in the sense of what you and I might have studied at school, uh, but it's also the sense of what we read, who we talk to, what we might watch in terms of visual stimulus, our experience of travel. Um, all of those have given people very differing feels. Now, it's not the case that necessarily the most cosmopolitan people identify with Europe. That's far too crude. I mean, after all, if you're cosmopolitan, you might spend your time in California or Singapore, where you're scarcely going to identify with Bulgaria or, or Romania. So one's got to be much more sophisticated with a, than with a lot of this discussion. But I think what one has got is a... Um, a tension as to how best to understand Britishness. And I mean, I would actually say that that's part and parcel of something I tried to deal with in in an earlier book, which I'm not sure if it's in print or not. (laughs) I mean, it was a a history of of modern Britain. And in that, I asked the question about whether Britain was governable. Now, now, by that, I didn't just mean episodes like the petrol driver strike in 2001, though that was uh, something I was interested in, and, you know, the way that the police said they couldn't control it. What I actually meant was the breakdown of incorporating myths. Mm. And part of that, I think, is going on. I think part of that is responsible for the angry response on both sides, Brexit and Remain, to the divisions about the relationship between Britain and the European Union. And, you know, both sides have been characterized by degrees of anger, which are really quite interesting. Um, and which, you know, I, you know, there was a lot of concern, I remember, in the early 70s, but I don't remember the same sort of scale of anger. And I think that that's because that the idea of incorporating myths have got become much weaker. Now, you can discuss why that might be. It might be the absence of an experience akin to the world wars. It might be the breakdown of deference. It might be a more individualistic society in which people therefore have more individualistic political views. There are a whole host of reasons, and some of them could be good and some of them can be bad. They are more all more important than blaming platforms, people too readily blame platforms in the shape of social media um, but you know it's much more important to actually look at the attitudes of mind which un- which affect how people consider what could be what they could be you know uh, receiving or exposed to and I think that this breakdown of a national uh, cohesion is something that one notes and therefore it's not really surprising that that breakdown extends to differing views on the relationship with the wider world. Mm. So 
So in other words, rather than seeing the differing views on the wider world as necessarily leading to divisions within British society, which is how I think most people now view the, you know, the cacophony over Brexit and Remain, uh, let me put it on its head. I didn't really discuss that sufficiently in the book, but I did discuss it a bit. Let me put it on its head. It is a divided society that can so readily just feed Brexit and remain into the more of its division and therefore, you know, embrace uh, anger about it, uh, rather than the Brexit remain issue being the cause of it, which I suppose underlines the enormous achievement of the of the current prime minister because she's wrestling very hard as somebody that believes in a big nation um you know sort of toryism but also a big nation you know, essentially a patriot deeply deeply rooted patriot she's trying to wrestle very hard from her perspective of support for a united country with the actual reality of division and you know i think her personal narrative which is that she's not from the sort of silver spooned uh, el- you know elite having sh- you know privilege shoved in their mouth as mr cameron did with their spoons or indeed with the sort of rather peculiar metropolitan anarchist tradition of Mr. Corbyn. I, I mean, I think it, you know, our best chances in many respects of Mrs. May, and, and I think it's a very difficult task to try and bring uh, or encourage not just a measure of unity, but also much more significantly a measure of tolerance of people having a different point of view. Well, Jeremy, it's been a pleasure to have you in the programme today. It really has. Before we wind up, could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment? Oh, yes. Um, very happily, so Now, look, this is going to sound like a caricature. This is a, 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 an unusual concatenation. Let me assure you, I have uh, no books under contract for... Um, for what I'm about to drop the phone. No, that's caught it. I have no books under contract for the mid-2020s. But this year, I'm bringing out, with Roman and Littlefield, a war and its causes, and also a book on the two world wars. Um, I'm bringing out with Little Brown a concise history of Spain. Um, and I'm bringing out with Indiana and England in the age of Shakespeare. And with Bloomsbury, a mapping World War Two, And with Encounter, uh, the Imperial Legacies book. Next year, uh, I hope to be bringing out uh, with Yale, a history of strategy. Uh, with Little Brown, a uh, concise history of Portugal. And with um, um, uh, Indiana and England in the age of Austin. Well, wonderful. Thank you for your many contributions. Um, it's been great to have you in the programme today to talk about your new book, Britain and Europe, just published by Hearst in 2018. Thanks for your time and take care. Thank you very much and greetings to all my friends around the world who are listening. And thanks to everyone else for listening too. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies channel on the New Books Network podcast. <laughs>